Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb, and our podcast is sponsored by Indiana Women's Action Movement. Um, we, I am just thrilled to be here with um, Ray McCormick today, uh, who's running for Congress in Indiana's 8th Congressional District. Um, this is a really terrific. I'm so excited to see you. I think you're a terrific candidate. And so I want to, you know, want to learn more about you and uh, your platform. So, um, so let's just start. If you can uh, just give us some information about your background. Where do you come from? What do you do? I come from right here. I come, I'm on a hill where my great grandfather lived. So four generations of McCormick's have lived here. This house that I live in, this is the office, but the house that I live in was built the year I was born. So I've really lived in the same spot all my life, except being away for college. But it's always been a farm and uh, I farmed all my life. So my father was going broke farming from being flooded and he decided to get into the insurance business. So this was a big insurance business on our farm. So I took over farming when I was literally old enough to drive a tractor, which was pretty young and have been farming ever since. But Cyrus McCormick, the inventor of the Reaper, was our relation. Clarence McCormick was my grandfather and undersecretary of agriculture in the Truman administration. And I've been quite active in conservation all of my adult life. So I've traveled all over the country, but in particularly a lot to Washington, D.C. to lobby on climate change with Richard Luger to uh, work with President Obama. I helped with the rollout his Great American Outdoors Initiative. I've worked on Endangered Species, Clean Water Act, the Farm Bill. And so I've been there many, many times and across the country as a, as a speaker on conservation. So my whole life has been driven by a desire to make a difference about our land and its resources and the water and wetlands and so forth. So, you know, all I'm trying to do is fulfill my destiny and, and running for office is a great way to do it. I, I really didn't realize how many times a day or a week I would get a chance to talk to people and people are like, uh, I saw on your website, you're just talking about these conservation things. Well, then I explain why it is so darn important and why people need to be educated on all this. And so we'll get into that. Yeah, but yeah. certainly uh, I'm being well-received and it's a bipartisan supported platform. So everybody wants to see the land taken care of. Everybody wants clean water. Everybody wants to see their children and grandchildren stay in the rural areas and not move away. So quality of life now ties tightly in with the issues that I'm running on. Excellent, excellent. So so this is what, uh, so as an occupation, this is what you do, you farm, is that right? I farm seven days a week, wow. long hours every day, but it's what I love to do. So that is, part of, that is part of the story is that I'm leaving what I love not because I want power and I want to go to Washington, D.C. I want to save the planet. And we've got a way of doing that through putting carbon into the soil. So when you believe, as a lot of us do, we're at the tipping point, this message, this plan, this formula is the only one by which we can save the planet. So that's why I'm running to save the planet is through these conservation measures that will explain 
is exactly how we can get it done. Yeah, this is such, uh, I, and I just think uh, and it makes you an ex extraordinary farmer and an extraordinary candidate um, because, you know, it has been really tough to work with farmers. I've worked with our local soil and water conservation district. I've done a lot of environmental work and um, getting farmers on board with conservation techniques in farming uh, is, has been really tough uh, and really, uh, and it's been really hard. It's been an interesting journey trying to find out what is the, what's holding this up? Why are farmers so hesitant to go no-till uh, you know, or, you know, just, you know, do some of the, you know, there's the programs that the, um, you know, the, uh, the NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Services, awesome. you know, all kinds of funding that they provide to farmers for conservation farming techniques. Um, but farmers really just don't take advantage of it. I mean, at least that I know of in Indiana. Um, and sure oh, enough, man. as I drive around the state, I see, you know, you know, dust storms, like, you know, like, does anyone remember how, you know, the big dust bowl happened in Oklahoma, uh, you know, because people are tilling their farmland and it's, you know, it's just flying up in the air. So you're, you're absolutely right. We're not getting there fast enough, but we're moving at a much more rapid pace than ever in the history of agriculture. The farm bill is the single biggest body of money being spent in the world on conservation. So all across the nation, right. we not only have fabulous USDA Farm Bill conservation programs, but we have the soil and water conservation districts, 4,000 of them across the country that are helping put these on the land. The soil and water conservation districts are the link. So I was the president of the Indiana soil and water conservation districts and, and served at the national level. A, a young man from Lagodi that lived with me and worked on my farm is now the president of the national association. But, but we'll go into that, but there's a bunch of fabulous programs and it's, it's sort of like filling in a quilt. So in Southwestern Indiana, you would be excited because it's very common to go up and down the road everywhere I live and there's cover crops and no-till everywhere. Other places, it's not as much socially accepted. So farmers aren't adapting as quickly. And part of that is leadership in those soil and water conservation district offices, NRCS offices. So in Southwestern Indiana, the part where I'm running is heavy in adopting all of these methods, farming methods that make so much difference. And you talked about the dust, but it's literally a mud bowl when you cross the White River or Wabash. Mm -hmm. Our topsoil is headed to the Gulf of Mexico. And, and what future do we have of trying to go to the Gulf of Mexico and get our topsoil back and bring it back? None. Yeah. So it makes way more sense to hang on to it. So we're all doing all we can, but Indiana factually is leading the nation in cover crops, which really? is one of the keys. One of the four keys is cover crops, continuous okay. cover. Indiana two years ago had one and a half million acres of cover crops. So cover crops, for those that don't know, that's what I put on every acre of my land with my combine as I'm harvesting. So it all has an instant layer of green growing on it that can sequester carbon, hold nutrients in place, build the soil structure, grow higher yields. So I grow cover crops like 
a many on every acre that I farm so that we're covering the ground, sequestering carbon the year round. So we do it with corn and soybeans, but we do it with cover crops in the fall and in the spring, then we plan into them. So mimicking nature by having a diverse species growing on the ground and sequestering carbon with the energy of the sun is how we get the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It's so we're already way overloaded and it's a beneficial carbon is the most important element in your body, but also in your soil. Do you know that the makeup of the elements in your body is identical to the makeup of those elements in the soil? Exactly the same. So as you eat a carrot or ear of corn, think about that you're eating something that comes from the earth. So as your body grows and evolves and so forth, you have just the same percentage of carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and everything in your body is what's in the soil. So it's, it's an exact duplication. Even our DNAs are quite simple, similar too, which makes sense too. Yes, it does. All right. So, so this is great. And I, you know, I could talk to you all day about, you know, let's do it. I've got all day. <laughs> we're going to talk about this. No, I know, but we, I want to talk about some other things too. So um, tell me what are the other, you know, what's your platform? I, I'm sure that it is conservation farming, which is great saving the planet in that way um, and doing whatever you can to both adapt and mitigate um, uh, climate change impact. So um, so those all intertwine with clean water. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as we see some of the issues across the country, clean water is a big issue, whether you're in Flint, Michigan, or you're drinking out of a well in Southern Indiana, yes. or you're looking out at the river and what's happening to the hypoxia zone in the Gulf. All those are closely tied with what we, whether it's on your yard, your golf course, your city park, or your farm, all of that is closely tied with what we do on the land. Clean air is on the way, and we'll talk about this, but cleaner air where I live is some of the dirtiest air in the United States. Southwestern Indiana right now has warnings today yeah. that it's unhealthy to breathe the air out there. So clean air is a part of that quality of life. Those things also tie in with nutritious food. So the food that you buy in the supermarket today is considerably less nutritious than what your grandparents ate. So as we process and ship food and so forth, so as you build the soils, not only does food taste better because you have a healthier soil, but it's more nutritious. That, that orange or that carrot or that ear of corn or that tortilla shell, in my case, the bottle of alcohol that you drink comes off of a healthy soil. So, uh, you know, tying nutrition, not only to healthy soils, but from farm to market. So we have a great farmer's market in Vincennes and so forth. And that's, and then the WIC program, which gives uh, underserved women with children, nutritious food from a local farmer at a farmer's market. So those kind of programs. So we're talking nutrition now. So it's hard for me to get away from those things because they're so closely tied with the land. And those things matter to people. One of the exciting things that's happening in my area is we have a dozen coal-fired power plants, five on the borders of my county. All of them 
at least three immediately are closing down. Solar is going to surround every one of those power plants. So there's going to be solar farming, you know, harvesting low cost energy. Everybody's talking about the high cost of energy. This is extremely low cost energy. Solar energy right now is half the cost of coal energy. And of course, there's no emissions. What I'm working on is these, these tens of thousands of acres of solar panels come in to these power plant areas. We're gonna, I'm meeting tomorrow with a solar company out of California. We're designing the solar farms so that we can grow pollinator habitat. We can grow native prairie grasses so we can graze sheep. We can grow cantaloupes, watermelons, broccoli. So we're gonna design them so that we grow things under the solar panel and harvest the sunlight. So it's sort of a shaded environment that lends itself to specialty crop production and pollinator habitat. So the bees are in trouble. So all of those things are coming along with these giant solar farms. The one I'm signed with is proposing 14,000 acres between my desk and that power plant, 14,000 acres. Wow. Also, with that comes low-cost energy, so data processing. So the biggest user of renewable energy in the United States is Facebook, yeah. by far, because of the data processing they do. So data processing is done in a big building full of computers that use up a massive amount of energy. Then it takes even more energy to cool that building to keep those computers, they will be locating at these hubs, at these power plants where solar is going to surround it because they want to be renewable and they want low cost energy. Following in with that data processing will be those companies. So there's going to be phenomenal economic growth in my area. And it's not a prediction. I've already signed. I'm meeting with another solar company tomorrow, helping them design theirs. And so it's gonna, it's gonna happen. So low cost energy, renewable energy, and I'm running two cars right now. I've got a car that's got 5,800 miles on it, costs $36,000, and I'm charging it off my solar panels in the middle of the day. So I've got less than $30 in charging cost at 5,800 miles. So as soon as we get the chips, as soon as we get the cars, people are gonna say, so long oil company, I'm gonna run off of my solar panels. And we've got two cars now that we just charge up here at our house. I'll be going to a fundraiser in Indianapolis tomorrow night and be able to make it up there and back for zero. Won't cost me anything. So that's coming. So solar at the home and solar in giant farms are both here now. So that's exciting part of what the future is and why there's going to be a good future in the 8th District. That's awesome. So I, I want to talk about some of the other issues that um, tend to uh, resonate in uh, rural areas. Um, of course, it's, um, you know, diminishing access to healthcare in those areas. Um, well, let's you know, talk about that. Let's just yeah. talk about that one. Okay. So yeah. my good friend, Tom Thompson, he has a family practice at Monroe City. He's a dying breed. He, his parking lot is packed. So when you cut your finger or when you're getting pneumonia 
or when you have a mental health crisis or a family crisis, you go to him and you get right in the door. You don't have to wait and you get taken care of by a family doctor for a very low cost. And if he don't have money, he helps you. That's disappearing. So not only is the availability of healthcare where you have to drive 40 miles to get to the Vincennes Regional Hospital, you're not likely to come if you're getting pneumonia, if you got to go to the emergency room. So as these family doctors leave and the availability of primary care doctors leaves rural communities, communities suffer. The health of women suffers. Uh, childhood mortality and, and, and pregnancies that go wrong. So many things can be cut off affordably with a primary care doctor. Now, we have a nice hospital here in Vincennes, but again, people drive from a long way to get to the emergency room for primary care. Right. So availability and primary care doctors in rural Indiana or in rural America is a challenge. People want to not have to deal, and I hear this from doctors, the, the, all of the rules and regulations they have to follow. My wife's an optometrist, and she will be working late at night or on Sunday to get her charts and everything done. So that's a challenge for doctors. Well, why not just work for a hospital where you don't have to take care of all that? So that's forcing people out of running their own medical businesses out in the country and, you know, used to, we said doctors came to our house. I can remember when the doctor came to my house because my mother had ate, a, you know, bad mushrooms that we picked. The doctor came to the house. Wow. Now we can't even hardly go to the local doctor because you don't have one. You go well, to I'm going to take a stab at um, pointing a finger at the uh, um, insurance companies. Um, and I can see that doctors, you know, as much as we complain as, you know, consumers of healthcare about insurance companies, you know, that we pay too much in premiums and then co-pays and then deductibles. Um, and then too much stuff isn't covered um, after spending all that money um, that doctors are also getting the squeeze. So like you mentioned, your, your, your Tommy Thompson down the road, um, if he's on his own, he has to go through all kinds of, you know, crazy machinations to get insurance, you know, approved and uh, for each patient and pre-approval. And, um, and then they will say, okay, well, we'll give you 50 cents for, you know, for that, um, for that operation that you just performed. That's what um, happens to my wife. Right. So as a eye care physician. This right, is and so it is more, it's more preferable for insurance companies to, to work with bigger corporations, uh, hospital corporations, where they can strike a deal and get a discount, um, you know, so that they're only going to pay, you know, a, a very small amount. And the hospital, you know, maybe has more, I don't know, more administrative uh, funding that that supports that. And then doctors just make a salary. Um, so, well, you, yeah, I can certainly see why that well, is. I have a friend that supplies home care equipment. So beds, oxygen tanks for people that more and more we get hospitalization from home. He won't accept Medicare. He says, I just can't, I just can't make a living yeah. Yeah. with all the paperwork to have to work through Medicare. Well, you know what? I mean, I'm on Medicare now, but but 
doctors that won't accept Medicare really cuts off a lot of people because of the bureaucracy and lack of of good pay for their services. So, And I think that's especially a problem among mental health providers because they are not often in big, you know, conglomerations. They're often in small little firms. And so they do I'm not glad, have the capacity to deal with I'm all I'm glad of that. you brought that up because certainly rural health care, mental health care has got a big focus. We, I hear it on the rural radio. I hear it on the Farm Bureau Network. Uh, I see it in farm magazines. I hear the president of Indiana and, and, and the National Farm Bureau talking about it because, you know, that stigma that was placed on those who went for mental health care, well, farmers pride themselves on being tough and strong and hardworking, so they would never allow their known throughout the community pickup to be parked in front of a place that provided mental health care. So getting over that stigma out in the country is much stress as farmers go through with weather, so many things you can't control, along with family and every, all the other problems you run into. Uh, it is a big problem out in rural, and we're trying, I think the whole agricultural sector is trying now, this year, to really get on it, because it's a problem. Yes. So, okay, let's switch uh, topics a little bit and talk about um, education. Um, there's been several reports nationally that show Indiana to be about 10 years behind on technology jobs skills um, and really placing them out of competition. Um, in fact, um, U.S. Senator Todd Young was very proud of some legislation he got passed to create these um, incubator hubs, uh, technology things. Um, but, you know, what he really needs to acknowledge is that they're great and those are competitive um, competitive grants to have those that Indiana will no way get one because we are not at all competitive in technology skills. So we're, you know, I mean, it's a great bill if you pass it, but it certainly is not gonna um, benefit Indiana uh, if we do not have technology uh, education that will produce technology innovation. Um, in Indiana. So, so um, yeah. So we so heard it from the CEO of Eli Lilly. That's right. He said it. We're going to spend billions of dollars in North Carolina and, and Ireland and so forth because Indiana is so far behind on education, math, and science, lack of intrusive, uh, inclusiveness, and right. on and on, no, not enough renewable energy. So our own Eli Lilly of Indiana is going elsewhere. And I grew up, you know, going to a tiny little rural school, but it was the great equalizer. So, so not only do we need educated people, but we need public education where, the, where everybody, you know, I didn't realize all these kids around me were so poor when we were going to grade school, they're just your friends but they all got an equal chance to lift themselves up through that public school and did. Yeah. And uh, as John Gregg said, and I think I'm in the same case, I, I graduated in the top 10 of my class. Unfortunately, it was the bottom half. So, <laughs> so, so these little schools had great teachers and there's sort of been an attack on education on attack. And so 
in rural Indiana, it's a real problem because how do we pay our teachers enough when we're dragging money off for charter schools and when Carmel or Fishers can pay so much, recruiting in teachers and having good teachers is a very systemic problem in, in rural areas like my eighth district. And we have falling populations and so forth. And much of the school funding is based on how many kids do you have coming to school? And exactly. so rural schools are not only on being attacked, but also being underfunded. And that in the long term is going to put us in a deeper hole than we are already in Indiana in education. Right. And one of the other rural issues that I worry about is um, the diminishing access to higher education in rural areas. Um, there really is such little access. I don't know. Um, maybe uh, you have an Ivy Tech in your community, or I'm not we sure. I mean, we a, have we have a Vincennes University, which I went yeah, to, right. and it is right. a fine school. Evansville has two fine colleges. So, and we have Purdue and IU and Notre Dame and on and on. So, Indiana has some outstanding universities. One of the things that that may tie in with this in the future is. For workforce force development, a lot of young people do not have driver's license or automobiles. So how are we gonna to go to a community college where you would normally, you know, you would normally drive to school and come home in the evening and so forth when so many young people now do not home, own automobiles. So that may be a hurdle that I was unaware of before I started running for office. And if, Everybody tells me a story now. Oh, yeah, my grandson's going on 20. He's never drove and so forth. So in a rural community, it's not only commuting to college, but it's also being able to get to a job at Sunrise Coal or, or Far Best Turkey Operation, some of the better paying opportunities. They're not in your back door. you got to be able to get to work. So, so there are various things, but I in, in our area, there's good chance for quality education. I got one at Vincent's University and lots of my friends went two years to Vincent's University, then on to IU or Purdue or another four-year school. So um, tell me about the employment situation there in the 8th District. Are, are jobs that used to be, you know, like manufacturing jobs that used to pay, you know, 10, 12, 13 dollars an hour, are they now 18, 20, $22 an hour? Did the wages go up? Well, I went to the job fair. So uh -huh. before I was going on the campaign stop, I went to the job fair at Vincent University. So it was the economic development people and Chamber of Commerce and then all these businesses that need em employees. And, you know, I was about the only one there. So you so have dozens of tables of people trying to hire people and so the same thing happened at Vincent or at Evansville. The same thing happened at Princeton. So you did you ask not... the employers what they're paying? I mean, that's because I, I went to some job yes. fairs too, poking around. Yeah. And so, yeah. So what are they paying? All right. So Sunrise Coal starts you in the upper $30 an hour and they need 350 jobs in my county. Starting at that rate? At that rate. Shoosh. So. Wow. So when you talk to these employment agencies, COVID, a lot of people retire. A lot of families cannot afford the childcare. 
or can't even find it. Right. So men price, and right. women aren't returning <laughs> to the workforce because of childcare issues. And then, like I said, transportation has become an issue. So there are various factors, but I would say in rural Indiana, on the road, the number one issue that I hear about is a lack of workforce. That's holding us back more than anything. My cousins who, who have a trucking business, a big one, 40% of the trucks sitting and not moving. And that, those are sixty dollars to $80,000 a year jobs. 40% of the trucks, no drivers. When I talk to other businesses about what are some of the problems you're incurring, they say logistics, the, the ability to transport either things into their plant or their business or their grain elevator and out. So I've experienced the same thing as a farmer that's employing people. There is a big shortage of people that, that can or will come to work. And there's other factors in that. It's the flexibility of hours to be able to, and there's a drug use problems. So is that employer able to help and work with people to get off of their drug problems and get back into the workforce and so forth. So there's, there's mental health issues. And so there's a combination of things that are working out there. So people come and go and come and go. At my cousin's trucking business, the average employee is there less than one year. Can you imagine trying to run a business where your average employee, I hear it in the daycare system. So we're talking about Childcare and daycares, the daycares are having a horrible problem. So she wanted to be a registered daycare center. So it takes her about a month to go through all the paperwork and background checks and get her trained, a new person trained. A lot of times they only make it a week or two and then they say they don't want to do that and they move on. Lots yeah, of well, I will say, I don't think those wages are really moving up. And that's, that's a problem. Um, but I but think normally people aren't saying it's wages. It's other, other things that, I mean, this is what I see is, huh. and even in, in, at my place, I pay well, and it's hard to keep employees. Huh. So, um, and so I, I guess I was going to ask if you think some of that is due to people not having the, or the correct skills, but yes. uh, yeah, yes. okay. I think that is part of the issue too, particularly, you know, jobs over $30 an hour, there's you know, there's some skills I think people are just lacking. Um, and it could be some social complaining skills. about that in Indiana for a long time. So some people, you know, I had a friend that employed over a hundred people. And he said, when he interviewed him, he asked very few questions or no questions about their experience. It was all questions about their ability to work as a team player. Because if they couldn't work as a team player, they could always train them but they were looking for good team players more than they were looking for people that had experience and knowledge in that business. So that's what he would look for. And I know my wife goes through a lot of employees and so forth. And if they're not a good team player where you need a team working together, then it's a problem. And in some jobs that are like uh, the big grain processing plant that I haul a lot to, there's a lot of communication going on all the time. So everybody's on a radio trying to keep this plant going. So it's very few people keeping a giant plant going. So communication skills 
are very important. So he cannot hire people that don't have good communication skills because that's how the plant runs, see? So if people have always interacted maybe, and maybe this is a bad example, always interacted texting and so forth and have never been on person-on-person relationships in a work environment, that could be challenging. Well, I think, um, you know, so I come from an education background. I worked with early childhood uh, education programming for a long time, and I sit on the school board now. And um, I will tell you that uh, that's what we call social emotional learning. Um, that, and, you know, those are the skills that we teach in early childhood education. <laughs> um, and, you know, nobody uh, wants to appreciate that. But in fact, that's, you know, that's what you learn when you go to preschool. And, you know, when I see uh, crowds like that, and you can, you know, you can look around and say, oh, that kid did not go to preschool. <laughs> that child did go to preschool. They know how to work with others. They know how to, co- you know, resolve conflicts, you know, peacefully. They know how to work collaboratively. They know how to, you know, have empathy for other people and, um, and express their acknowledgement of, you know, people's feelings. Um, and that's really, those are the skills, you know, that I think um, are, are very important. And, and so, uh, you know, when I, I spent, you know, many years in early childhood education and was always advocating um, for social emotional learning in elementary schools. Um, but when I was really begging for money for early childhood, I used to say that it was because uh, this is the only time that children will learn those very important social skills um, that will serve them well in employment, in their families, in their communities. And, um, uh, and so then, of course, when I saw social emotional learning coming to elementary schools, I was really very excited. Um, but then, of course, you know, there's your big smack in the face like, uh, oh, no, gosh, can't have that. Um, Republicans do not like it because we'll be, you know, talking about empathy and about, uh, you know, caring for other people. Uh, so, you know, we never tell that story. So I, I appreciate you hearing that story. But when I went to school, there was no kindergarten. But <laughs> we all talk about these folks have not put up hay. So many of the skills you're talking about, working together, stacking it up, getting the bales right, hooking up the wagons. And so you develop that or picking everybody around here, pick peaches and watermelons and put up hay. So you do learn a lot about interacting and working and you you become appreciative that there's a lot better jobs than putting up hay. (laughs) But a lot of kids used to do that because we used to need a lot of labor. So a lot of people my age go, oh yeah, I used to put up hay all summer. I worked in the melons all summer and stuff. So you learn some of that working together and helping each other and empathy for somebody that's having a hard time keeping up and and meeting new people out on those farms. So in a, in a work environment on a farm, you learn, learn some of those same skills. Yeah. Well, um, let's hope that um, we are, you know, able to teach that in public schools where it belongs, uh, where most kids are getting their education, um, not so much on the farm anymore. But okay, so um, tell us about your campaign. How is it going? Um, you know, what kind of things are you doing? What kind of help do you need? Um, t- tell me how, you know, how much fun you're having on your, on your campaign. People don't believe it, but it, it has been fun. So when you're, when you're going out and meeting with people and talking about things that are of interest to you and you want to help people and people honestly look at you and they have a look of hope in their eyes that you're going to 
help them or that there's a good future. When you talk to young people about climate change, their eyes light up or that, that you're, you know, as a farmer, you're, you're welcoming um, the pride, you go to pride events and so forth. So all of that gives them hope. So that part of it is almost a weight on you because then you feel even stronger. You have to win and come through for them. And so meeting people and being around them and, and I like to engage in everything. So whatever they're doing, I went crawling in a, in an area this high in a cave to get back into the caves of the lost river where they were proposing the mid States highway. So oh, I wanted wow. to say I was in those caves. You shouldn't build a highway over the top of them. Or if I'm kayaking with a group that picks up trash out of the Ohio river, you know, so I like to engage with people and interact with people, you know, just flat tie in and get in there with them or climb, do it on a rock climb that the kids are doing. I said, I think I can do that, you know, so all of that is fun and meeting people and organizing and finding people of common interest, especially those that care so much about the land and the environment and and the climate and, and those things, that's, so, you know, you go to Earth Day events and you see kids lined up at a table coloring things at Earth Day, man, that's touching now. And you see people engaged with bringing their children to, you know, a demonstration or a parade or something. Those, those are inspiring things. So it's those young families with their children at a, at a strawberry festival and everything. The, the not so fun stuff is, is that you got to raise money and to be able to compete against my opponent who gets a lot of money, has a lot of money. I've got to raise money, but it seems like, as I once heard, if you believe in what you're running on, then you shouldn't feel bad about asking people to help you do that. So I kind of take that attitude. And, and quite frankly, I spend so much money on a farm of outrageous bills that asking people for what would be a small part on a combine doesn't seem like that big, big of ask, you know. So, you know, you break the wind out of the door of the tractor and it's the maximum amount that a person can give you for a campaign. So to me, it doesn't seem like that big a deal you know, for them to give. And so... Um, the challenge is, is going to be get in front of people. So there's, everybody knows it's a heavy Trump area. It's a heavy, it's turned Republican. So I have to get in front of those people. And when they see me and talk to me and everything, you know what they say? I'm going to vote for you. Okay. So, so it's a matter of finding enough ways to get in front of people without spending millions of dollars. And it's unfortunate that that's how most people do it, but I'm going to try to do it by outworking everybody and out traveling. And since I've got an electric car, it doesn't cost me anything. That's right. And I love music. So when I'm going or coming, I can listen to music and be inspired when I get there. And, and so, you know, I think I've got a winning combination and a lot of other people believe too. So Excellent. we'll see. I want to now, I want to ask you about two of the, you know, two of the biggest most difficult issues for Democrats uh, in this election, of course. Well, actually, there's more than that. I mean, the one that's most difficult for um, Democrats is inflation. 
-hmm. So uh, as usual, Republicans have done, you know, a, a great uh, disinformation campaign, um, mm -hmm. you know, claiming, of course, somehow Biden is responsible for inflation. So I'm sure you get this question a lot. And so what do you how do you talk to people about that? So I am unfortunate enough to have went through it in the 70s and 80s. And so, and other people say this, a lady said the other day, when we bought our first home, it was 18% interest. Well, 18% interest about sunk me because when we bought our big, biggest farm, land prices or interest rates went to 18% interest and the grain prices didn't follow. So I'm going to borrow some money tomorrow for another piece of ground. That's my only vice. I'm admitting to it. I love to buy little pieces of ground here and there. It's going to be like five and a quarter percent interest. Well, that's not horrible. That's not going to stop me. Um, I understand people that are buying fuel that are on limited budgets and so forth, fuel prices. But, you know, fuel is a world market. Uh, our supply is big coming out of this country, as big as it was in 2014. But, and fuel price of gasoline was under $2 then. But it's a world supply. So oil is a commodity that is traded all around the world. And if we are not getting it from Russia, then that's a big cut into the oil supply. Uh, food prices are up, but it's supply and demand as there's less crops because, I mean, Biden isn't responsible for the drought in the Middle Plains that's cutting off our wheat supply. He didn't, he didn't cause the drought. If anything, Democrats are working to try to cut off some of the impacts of climate change. So a lot of things are out of our hands. He didn't cause COVID. COVID caused a lot of the oil fineries to close down for maintenance and so forth. So they're not able to get up and running. And a lot of like the questionable fuel surprise, like the tar sands, people lost their shirts on that. Well, they're not gonna, they're not gonna start that back up because people are gonna shift to less carbon-based energy. And so why spend billions of dollars building a new refinery when they just went through a long period of losing money because people are shifting away from using carbon-based fuel? So we're going to do that. But a lot of things have come together right now that are impacting everyday families and probably those that are struggling the most from COVID and the impacts of that and so forth, and then have to use that automobile. Those are the people that's been impacted the most. I don't have any sympathy for the guys in their big diesel trucks that are letting them run while they're in the stop and go buying lottery tickets. Now, come on now. It isn't that bad or you'd shut your daggone truck out off and roll down the windows. So, you know, I don't want to hear it from those guys, you know, or people that go zooming by me in their big SUV and there's one person in there and I've got a half the cost electric car. You know, I put a smile on my face, but they, you know, you make some personal choices of which vehicles you buy, what you run your air conditioner temperature at, whether you've invested in solar panels or trips to Europe. I mean, not every, that's not for everybody, but we all make personal choices that are impacted by energy. And energy has always been one of the biggest 
issues in the United States where are very intensive in energy use. And this has been discussed since back before cap and trade. I worked with Richard Luger on cap and trade and spent hours with him on, and his was more progressive than the cap and trade bill. But, you know, Jimmy Carter talked about weaning off of foreign oil and Ronald Reagan did, and we got to get off of foreign oil, but, you know, we're still not using all that foreign oil, but we are heavily dependent on energy. So energy conservation, I'm a conservationist. So I've always been real cognizant or think a lot about conserving energy and there's no lobby for that. I mean, who's the big powerful lobby that's lobbying for use less energy? So I am because I'm an environmentalist, a conservationist and, and uh, I think about those decisions. Great. Okay. And now I'm going to ask you about one of the other tough issues that Democrats are facing um, this election cycle. And that is, of course, um, uh, guns. And I'm sure you know, Indiana is about to, uh, our bill that was passed last year is about to go into effect on July 1st, making um, uh, making it, um, you know, you walk around with a gun without getting a permit now. Uh, so, of course, police will not know who's supposed to have a gun and who is, who is supposed to have a gun. So, um, and of course, there's so many loopholes. People say, oh, well, they get the background check when you buy it. Well, so many people don't, you know, they don't buy guns from a regular gun, gun shop. They buy it at a gun show where there's no, uh, no background checks, or they just, you know, get it from a friend. They buy, you know, personal transfer. It also doesn't require a background check. So, so when uh, I started running for office, those sheriff's races were in every county. So I got to hear a lot of, and meet with a lot of people running for sheriff. That's usually the highest profile race in each county. So I got to hear a lot about this. And the first thing I learned is one of the reasons that law enforcement was came out so strongly against taking away the registration of guns in Indiana is because imagine me or you are a law enforcement officer stopping a car at night. Well, when they look at the license plate, they know that's John Doe John Doe went through the process of being fingerprinted, background checked. He went through everything legal to carry a gun. So he's a good guy. I don't have to worry that this guy's going to whip out a gun and shoot me. Now they just flat don't know because good guys and bad guys both can have a gun and he can't tell by running the license plate and seeing who's in the car in front of him. So that is one of the reasons. One of the other reasons is the money that was used to register those gun owners went back to law enforcement. So essentially that bill defunded law enforcement officers. So that wasn't a big deal, but that's part of what happened from that. Um, and how are you feeling about the federal action that's taking place now? So there's a bill that may pass that I think raises the age um, to get long guns to 21. Um, uh, I think it enhances some of the background checks, uh, you know, background checks in more situations. Um, and I thought there was one more piece to that that was staying in. And what are you thinking? Are you familiar with the what's yeah, well, Congress now? I am my campaign manager. I'm saying, look at what they've actually are gonna put in front of Mitch Daniels before I comment because it's not done yet. You know, they Mitch Daniel or Mitch 
McConnell said, oh, yeah. if it stays within the framework, he's going to support it. So let's see if it stays within the framework. But but generally, I can talk about that. So I've, you know, I had my dad teach me how to shoot a little 22 when I was a young man. And then I got to eventually go rabbit hunting with a shotgun. And now I have a duck hunting business. So I'm around people with guns all the time. So we are very strict on keeping your gun unloaded in a case. You carry it in a case to the hunting blind and so forth. So I know how dangerous guns are. And these are not high capacity clip guns. These are guns for shooting a duck. If you duck hunt, you get three shots. So federal law mandates for a mallard duck, you get to shoot three times. Well, that's a federal legislation limiting the number of shots for a duck. Wow. So I think we can have, you know, that they people argue, well, you need to be able to put 250 round clips in a gun. I can't imagine how anyone needs that. So I'm against high capacity clips. I don't think guns that are made to shoot people. So you have, in me, you have two kinds of guns. You have guns that you hunt with and you would deer hunt with it or squirrel hunt with it and so forth. And you have guns that people carry that they're going to shoot somebody with it if certain circumstances come up. And I tell people, I don't own a gun made to shoot people. I'm not going to shoot a person and I'm not afraid. So I myself don't have any guns that are a handgun or a rifle or anything made to shoot other people. I don't like being around people that have a gun made to shoot people because I'm looking at that person saying, you are going to decide who lives or die. I'm standing in the same restaurant with you, or I'm standing in the same gymnasium with you. My life depends on your mental, your training, your ability to discern who's a good guy and bad guy. So I'm uncomfortable because I know what a gun can do. I've killed enough deer. One shot will easily kill a deer. One shot will easily kill a human. So I don't like being around guns that are made to shoot people. I just am uncomfortable with it and I don't carry it. So if you want to, I think you need to be an adult to do that. So I think you need to be 21, period. Not just on an AK-47. If you're gonna buy a squirrel hunting gun, then 18 or if your grandpa wants to give you one, if you're going to carry around a high capacity military style weapon, you need to be a mature adult and you need to be trained and checked, background checked. So you listen to a person in the service. They don't hand you one. They store them away. They train you to shoot them. And they go through a lot of training before they're allowed to shoot them on their own without supervision. I think that that's a good idea. You need to know what a proper backstop is. So when you're practicing with it, you don't accidentally shoot the neighbor, you know, and the gun doesn't get away from you. And you, and you understand the seriousness of shooting a gun. And so that may be tougher than what this law is, but I'm telling you, I own a lot of guns, my grandpa's squirrel gun and my dad's rabbit gun, and you can't get the safe Harley stuff, but they're kept in a safe. And, and I only use one or two, and that's usually to chase a duck or a deer with my dog. So, you know, 
I'm just telling you that I, I'm going to fall on the side of the kids in the school, okay. not on the person's right that ended up running into the school is we got to protect the innocent. We got to protect those who don't deserve to be mowed down. And if 45,000 people a year are losing their lives from guns in this country, it's a darn serious problem. There's not a simple, easy answer. We need to take multiple steps and be careful how we do all of these so there's the pendulum doesn't swing too far and then we get pushback. But right now the pendulum is all one way. And if I had an A plus rating from the NRA, I would be embarrassed. Yeah, you certainly cannot get that kind of rating and care about kids. Thank so. you. All right. Okay, so um, so we're running out of time. So tell us how people can get in touch with you. How can they reach out to your campaign? Um, you know, where, where can people find you? All right, so Ray McCormick for Congress.com gets you to a website and you can look on Facebook at Ray McCormick for Congress. And, you know, everybody says it's social media and everything. And I don't, you know, you, if you go out to public events, I'm glad to visit with you. Even the lady at Merriam that says, I'm on the Russian side. <laughs> so, I'm glad to meet with everyone. And part of being a congressman is you're not afraid of the people in the 8th District. You don't need a police escort. You need to feel confident and go up and shake people's hands. And if they say, what are you going to do about gas? Or what are you going to do about guns? Or, you know, people need to express to somebody what their problems are or what they're concerned about and be able to look them in an eye and say, this is a guy that grew up in our area, in our country with dirt under his fingernails from our area. And they believe that you will help them. And I want to help them. And that's, that's why I'm running at this late age is I finally have a son old enough to take over the farm. So I've wanted to do more as much as I can forever and always volunteered all my time. But now I'm putting everything I got into being a congressman that cares a lot about the land and the people of the 8th District. That's wonderful. All right. Well, we'll end on that really wonderful note. So thank you again, um, Ray McCormick, for being here and joining me. And, um, and good luck to you. Um, I'll be traveling around. I'm doing work, you know, helping Democratic women run for state legislative seats. So I'll be traveling around. And I really hope that I get to run into you down there in the 8th. All right. Thanks All right. for having me. Absolutely.